Well, hello there. Welcome back to another episode of Garage Monologues with me, your host, Jay Swanson. And sometimes, not only your host, but the only person on the entire podcast, because as it's in the name, it's a monologue half the time and with a guest the other half of the time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're hearing this, it means you're on the public feed, which means you're about five or six months behind the members-only feed over on Patreon. So if you'd like to get these podcasts right as they drop and support both this show and my channel and everything else that we're working on over here, then head on over to patreon.com slash jswanson, and there will be a link with some explainers in your welcome message to get into the members-only feed, as well as you can just scroll back in time and watch the video versions just on the Patreon feed. It's pretty great. Thank you for listening. Either way, I hope you enjoy this episode. And now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Name's not even up. Process. Let me make some adjustments to my seating. And he farted right as he got up here. Grudge monologue. It's like funny. Grudge monologue. That's not that's not cool. to the season finale. This could be the season finale. I feel like I'm gonna have to do a bonus episode because this is not how I intended to end the season. But I did promise my video about leaving the church that I do a little bit of a longer kind of free flow uh, monologue, garage monologue, as it were, about my experience um, uh, in growing up in the church in deciding to leave the church and what that looks like and feels like. And honestly, the good thing is I feel like I can actually do this now um, now that I've, now that I have engaged with this because I used to be so worried about this. I think because when you grow up within a community and it is like all you've ever known and it's central to your identity, but also just your whole life as humans, like we want to do whatever we can to preserve that. And like any threat to our belonging to the group that we belong to is like, is an actual existential threat to us, you know, being cast out of the group is a physical pain. Like so social, social discord causes us actual physical pain. And that is something that was very real and very present for me for a long time. Because I mean, the church community that I grew up in at large and was involved with in college and everything else, like it was, they're pretty quick to throw people out who didn't agree with them. Like you either towed the line and you, you were a good little on in, in person on the inside or um you were immediately forgotten about you know it wasn't even that it wasn't even that people were necessarily actively like opposed to you it's just that you were very quick and easy to be forgotten about and it's something that i actually experienced as i started struggling just people nobody came to look for me nobody was really looking to see how i was doing and make sure that i was okay that's not entirely true there were a couple people along the way who were kind and uh and you know, checked in on me. And I don't, I think that's one of the reasons that I've also hesitated to, to share my stories because I feel like it's, it is kind of convoluted and it's really easy to speak in broad terms, like in general terms about a large group of people that is not monolithic. Like there were individuals in my church experience growing up that were very kind to me, that were wonderful people. Um, it's not like there, it was just like this experience, <laughs> this, this parade of demons but at the same time, that doesn't counteract the the harms and damages done. So anyways, that was kind of a long uh, political intro there to try and say that like, uh, yeah, I realize that it's not all black and white. But I think the good thing is that I'm in a place now where I'm finally able to engage with this and it does stress me out a little bit. Um, it is not easy to talk about publicly, but it's much easier um, because I've also found a new home and new people. Um, you know, those of you watching and listening have never known me as I used to be, right? You never knew me as the the pastor's kid and the, the leader within my faith community, the person who was, I mean, even like borderline a missionary for years of my life. Um it's interesting because it's an entire it's an entire portion of my life that's just been closed off and sealed off for a long, long time that I just haven't, not even that long of a time, it's just something that I haven't really publicly acknowledged. 
And it's not that I have to, but I think that I, I think it is important. And I, and the response that I got from the video that I posted this week, at least to Patreon, hasn't gone public yet. But uh, among my patrons, like it's uh, it's an important piece to an ongoing conversation for a lot of people. So all that to say, um, I'm learning and growing and I'm in a better place with all this. And the process of being public about it has been really helpful. So that's another reason to engage with it because I've found it to be an incredibly helpful experience just sitting and talking about it, and sharing it with you. Even though it does stress me out a little bit, it's a stress that is worth it, both personally and hopefully beyond, hopefully to the people that are watching and listening to this right now. So I grew up in eastern Washington state, which Washington state is one of the more, if not most progressive states in the United States. It's very uh, liberal, um, but the eastern portion, like any state in the states, it's divided up and the eastern portion is definitely much more conservative. Um, But the town I grew up in, Pullman, uh, is it's a university town. So it's the map that you can see on the wall behind me if you're watching on video. A university town, the way that the best way that I've ever heard it described is that it's a university that grew a town on its side. Like the town is kind of like a tumor growing off the side of the university. Um, the town did predate the university, but um, the university, it became the town in reality. And so education was king. You could even say education was God uh, in my hometown. And so there was quite the balance. And also it was a farming town. So either you were probably involved at the university or you're probably involved with farming. Um, those are the two major industries. And then if you weren't, you were caught in the middle uh, somehow doing something in the small town of Pullman, selling insurance or repairing cars or doing something. But um, it means that, you know, uh, farmers are, are uh, at least where I grew up, uh, farmers are really well, um, If even if they're not super well-educated, which everybody in that community clearly was, um, smart people, hardworking people. And so... I think we were just surrounded by very high achievers, people that were like hardworking, people that put their um, nose to the grindstone and really, really got to work. Um, and so either you were an academic and or you were, you know, working literally in the fields. Um, there's just a good mix of people, smart people. And it meant that we uh, really treated education seriously to the point that like, I think 96% of my graduating class went to college. There was just a few people that didn't go to college out of my high school uh, every year, which is insanely high uh, for American statistics. And it's just, but it was expected. You just went, you didn't really have a choice. Like you were going to go to college. So the, even though we grew up kind of in uh, a more conservative um, environment, there was, there were, there, you know, were people, international students, there was a little bit of a touch of the world, which I think is also part of why I wanted to see the rest of the world is because I wasn't totally isolated despite living in a really isolated part of the country. And it's also important to say because the church that we were involved with more broadly was very conservative to the point that I said this, I said this on, uh, Nathan's podcast, although I think that podcast won't be coming out. So, uh, we're going to have to re we're going to have to redo it, but the um the guys that were running a church that my dad was loosely affiliated with that he eventually walked away from are like the kinds of guys that get quoted by like far uh, far right KKK types. I think that they um what did he say? This is in Moscow, Idaho, um, and I won't name names, but you can figure it out pretty easily. Um, but he one of the guys was famous for like writing about how uh, African Americans were uh, happier. Not only better off, but happier being slaves. So there's some really dark, horrible garbage going on in this level of conservatism. So there is a clash between the university communities and then these conservative Christian communities. My parents were able to back out of that, um, distance themselves over time. It wasn't like, uh, I don't think it, like a light bulb went off. And I, I think, again, being in any community... It's very difficult to build space and to extract yourself, um, especially when you're physically, geographically so close um, and everything overlaps and is so tied together. So I give my my parents kudos for making strides to get away from that um, and for raising us to believe in like equality and, you know, racism's bad things that you I kind of take for granted. But in reality, we we were surrounded by a lot of like misogynistic and racist stuff that certainly seeped in and still seeped in. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff in there that I've had to deal with that I was not aware of as a kid, obviously. But I loved going to church as a kid. 
we uh, held services in the student union building, the CUB, the Compton Union Building at Washington State University, um, in the gridiron room. If anybody had this, these are reference points for just a very few people. But um, I loved it because you, we had to go through like kind of some back ways through the building to get to it, and it's a fairly large room, and you could look out onto the practice field for the um, the football team, the university football team, and. Actually, on weekends, like because Sundays were just dead on campus, like I found a hole in the fence at the at the stadium, the football stadium. So we'd actually sneak onto the the real field, the main field um, at uh, Martin Stadium, and go play around, play football there, and only occasionally get caught. And usually, you know, they'd just yell from a distance, and we would run away and scamper out of the hole that they never patched. It might still be there, probably isn't, but might still be there. And so we, uh, I don't know, there's a lot for me. Like there were not very many kids at uh, church. Um, There were a couple families, but most of the families went to the churches that had families, you know. Our church was was all college students. And on the one hand, I felt like that was kind of isolating as a kid because, you know, nobody went to my church. So all my friends at school and so forth, there was no easy affiliation that way. Um, And, you know, I I was not, I didn't go to like the, the there was the church with the cool uh youth group or the whatever we're going down a rabbit hole here for childhood but but i also like really liked my church i really liked the college students access to college kids all the time was great i met a bunch of like the you know the local football stars in particular there was an era where some really big names came through for those of you that that uh, followed the nfl years ago you know people like drew bledsoe um, that Drew Bledsoe once actually took me to a youth group event in his massive suburban uh, and dropped me off. He had a TV, and this is like way back in the day, and he still he had TVs in the backs of the seats. I remember it's crazy. It's it's interesting. I have a lot of questions actually. Now that I think about that, I have a lot more questions that I have answers about how that happened. But um, the his it, the so many questions, but there just had these connections with people that you know I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to know as a kid. That was super cool and. As an adult, I realized that church for me was as much a social thing as it was anything else. I think I cloaked it in the religiosity because I really dove into that too. In the video, I I talked about the intellectualization of things. These guys that write all these terrible things are akin to a lot of guys who don't write terrible things or who don't believe terrible things, but intellectualize their faith as a substitute for actually engaging with their their spirituality and your emotions you're feeling the mysteries of the universe and i really liked that i i liked intellectualizing i liked memorizing things and thinking about all the answers behind the questions and the questions behind those answers and digging deep and creating ways of thinking that like got me around the mysteries that helped me to answer questions that really have no answers um there's a there was a real allure to that for me that I think is very true for a lot of young men especially um, maybe the, I think I'm sure there are a lot of young women that that deal with that but then being surrounded by you know older uh, Christian men who uh, really encouraged that and because they they that was like their way of engaging with each other and I think their way of engaging with their faith there was a huge reward for being intellectually active and engaged for being able to debate, for being able to support what you believed through, you know, open reason and so forth. And again, that that's made even more intense by the fact that we are in a university town and it's a whole bunch of like academic nerds running around. Um, everybody wants to be smart and appear smart. And, um, you know, that's heavily rewarded, heavily valued in the local community as well. So it just kind of turned into like, depending on how you look at it, either a virtuous or vicious cycle, but it was a cycle of some sort. And so, you know, getting into high school and then this led into college too. I like, you know, led Bible studies, um, Bible studies full of college students when I was, you know, a junior in high school, a senior in high school. Um, I kind of was a darling in, in a lot of that. And that also ties into some of that. I've talked a little bit about my mom's stuff, but that ties into that where I, I wanted the approval of the adults in the room. I didn't really get any validation from my mom growing up. And so 
I was always looking to whatever adults were around and college kids were just like big kids, young adults, you know, like they were, they were honestly, they were on another level. They were cooler than adults. Um, and so to have their praise, to have them think that I was really cool. And then to find myself leading some Bible studies and being their leader, you know, just pumped up my ego hugely made me, made me really puff me up. So I was really deep into all of this. I mean, I really, really, I enjoyed it. I lived it, but there was always something that was missing too. Like I'm, I was constrained. Like I saw people living and doing fun things and doing, I don't know, just like, I, I, I don't think that the constraints were entirely uh, faith related. Some of them were definitely family related. Like the mom stuff, for example, when it came to dating and so forth, like I leaned into some of the rules that, that kind of protected me from dating, you know? And I claimed like, oh, I'm being holy. But in reality, I was pretty scared, I think, more than anything, or just confused. Didn't really know what to do. So it was easy to let uh, the ladies slide by and, and forget about them because I was onto holier things, I suppose. But that was more an excuse than anything. And in college, that was true, too. Because in college, I like doubled down on the, the religious identification because I went to a school, uh, Eastern Washington University, out of fear, I really should have gone to LA. I really wanted to go to film school. And I did go to film school at Eastern. They had a film school. And I let them sell me on the idea that it was a good film school. I should have left, though. I really should have gone to LA. I looked at going to Boston College. I looked at going to a handful of different places. But they were all so far away. They were all so scary. And they are expensive. And I had no support. Like, my family wasn't going to help me financially at all. Um, I really didn't have any means. And... Uh, going that far away, taking that big of a risk was really, really scary to me. And now, obviously, I, I, I would do it. I wish I had done that. I wish I had jumped out of that boat. I think that there's a whole world out there that I would have discovered much more quickly and would have uh, gotten this whole process the started sooner. But instead, I was like, no, no, I'm going to go to this place that's only an hour and a half away. And it's cheaper. It's a state school. Uh, they offered me a scholarship. I ended up on their honors program. So I got there and I just dove in. I had a great time. Like I was super social. School was really easy. My high school was incredibly difficult being in that small university town high school situation. Um, so difficult of a school that they actually gave us an, an extra, any state school would give any graduate from my school an extra 10th of a point to their GPA just for having a degree from my school. So had quite the reputation um, that I didn't appreciate till later, but that education was as I, as far as I realized later, it was good. Like college was a cakewalk. I slept through a 4.0 my freshman year where I had struggled to get like a three, six or whatever in high school. Um, and so I just focused on like the, the campus ministry that I found myself involved with. There were a few that I was looking at getting involved with. I tried a few different ones. There were always weird dramas is odd. I fell in with some just odd characters. I met one of my best friends that way. One of my best college friends that way, John Dalby, if he's listening to this, uh, who I need to reconnect. I can't, John, if you do hear this, what happened to your WhatsApp number? Like, I can't, I can't find it. I, how are we talking during the pandemic? I, anyways, I'll, I'll find you, John. But um, other people in that uh, circle, odd ducks, and found myself just in a lot of weird new religious situations where I was kind of learning and experimenting and growing. But, um, but also, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. Found myself with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is a really rough name. Uh, obviously, they're trying to rebrand away from the crusade part because maybe that's not the best thing to align yourself with. Um, but it was a student-led organization, student-led ministry. So we didn't have any adults around necessarily. It was just a bunch of kids running around leading this thing. And I think, you know, we were trying to do it with integrity and trying to do the best job we could. We inherited it from a group of people that were a totally different generation from us. They were a little bit, uh, I think, wilder and more fun, to be honest. And then we, the group that I took it over with, that I was in, uh, inducted with, uh, I think we were a little bit more like serious, a little bit more like, let's make this into a thing. I think we, um, I don't know if that's fair to say we were more serious. Maybe we weren't more serious. And maybe we were just more arrogant. Maybe I was more arrogant. Maybe I was part of the problem. Maybe I was the problem. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we tried to really... Um, really level it up and we grew it significantly and it was huge and it was again a big part of my identity but 
I think it's hard to, it's also hard to talk about all this without talking about how, like, I, I did, as I, like, grew up, I stopped trying to find validation in adults as much. I, that never full, that didn't fully stop for a while, maybe, but, you know, I would try to find validation from whoever was clearly at the top of the pile socially. Um, but then also from women. And even though I was scared to like really date and to jump into anything, like I was always looking for validation from not even directly from individual women, but like I wanted people to, I wanted to believe that I was attractive. I wanted to believe that that women wanted to be around me or wanted to be with me. And found myself in this place. This is another mom issue thing, but I found myself in that place where I wanted, I didn't want any one particular woman's affection so much as I wanted like all women to love me and not love me even in a sexual way, just like to, to adore me, you know, in a way. And so I found myself in this weird place where like I was sold on the religious side of things and very conservative. That's a whole story to tell actually um, in and of itself, but I was very sold on, like, I'm not going to be sexually promiscuous and blah, blah, blah. But I also wanted a lot of affection from as many places as I could get it. So I was, like, emotionally promiscuous. And I think I hurt some people. I know I hurt some people in the process of that, too, because I always used the faith stuff as a ripcord to get out of any relationship situation I found myself in, especially if I found myself a little bit scared or panicky or worried that, oh, my God, this could actually go somewhere. Back in the days before I would say, oh my God, because um, those days existed. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I kind of, I rode high on the social element of my faith at that point on the authority that I had from my knowledge from we, again, we we're in this highly intellectualized circles. Not everybody was, but there was a strong contingent of, of dudes, especially that wanted to sit down and read their systematic theology which is basically fanboyism for Christians. Um, it's just opening a giant book that gives you all the answers. Um, and then you, you agree with those. And the guy that doesn't agree with them, you, you show him how he's wrong. You prove him wrong, which is not how faith works. But that's how you think it works at that age, I guess. I don't know. Um, I was really into it. But I started asking more questions. Like the cognitive dissonance for me started growing. Where I was like, yeah, but like I see that I'm really sold on these things. And this is how it's affecting my behavior and other people are really not, they say that they believe the same things I do, but they don't do it, which is both true, but also kind of like arrogant and hypocritical of me because there were, in my heart, there were a lot of things that were really, really not, really not right, really not uh, clean. And so I, I don't know if I said this in the video or not. I don't remember what, what exactly I said, but I went to the church that I was involved with. I was involved with a church um, in Spokane, Washington, um, which is just a little ways away from where I was going to university in Cheney, Washington. And it was the cool church. It was like the hipster church, basically. And they had like a cool band. They always had good music and the, the pastor was a good speaker and you know, it was just a great place to go on Sundays and then, and hang out. And I, you know, got a bunch of people going there and kind of started that wing of, of the, my, I was the only person from my university going there when I started and eventually got a lot of people going there. And I thought it was cool. I thought I was having a great time. Honestly, I just thought I was having a really good time all around. Um, I definitely had my struggles. I definitely had, I had a lot going on that I wasn't fully aware of. Um, but I think it was it was in the midst of like, it was the cognitive dissonance was there, but I was really sold on just being a part of what I was a part of. I wanted to be in the middle of the cool kids. Like I was, I was at, I was very much at or towards the center of the, the cool ministry on campus, which a bunch of cool people, which maybe people from the outside didn't really think we were cool, but at least in Christian circles, it felt like we were the cool kids. I was going to the cool church. Um, you know, I was involved in that. I, I just felt like I was like, I was getting a lot of social validation for the choices I was making. And I was still very disciplined. As you may know, at this point, I'm a fairly extreme personality. I can be very disciplined when I choose to be like read my Bible every day. Like I was one of those people that actually read their Bible all the way front to back multiple times. Um, and I was just like a religious guy, but I wasn't like super, I wasn't religious. You know, I was I think, I hope I, I probably said, I'm, I'm sure I said, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm, but I'm a follower of Jesus, things like that. Um, 
And then always trying to convince people to join the club, to join the team. And I wasn't like a hyper evangelist. Like I hated going out and trying to convince people they should become Christians. But like, that's what kind of what we did as a group. We were expected to do to some degree. And then I did enjoy the debate part of it. I did enjoy uh, the intellectualizing, even if it was fairly pseudo intellectual. And it wasn't really until, yeah, I started like just kind of seeing the, I saw, I was seeing incongruencies in people's behavior and was just like, well, they're just not part of this club basically. But it wasn't until I went abroad and I lived in France and I saw two different churches being very unhealthy in two different ways. One of them was the one my roommate was involved with. And it's just like very territorial. The pastors in the south of France were very, very territorial. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't trust each other. And they just held on to their congregations with an iron grip. And you saw that. You saw that in the interactions, the relationships, and just felt very unhealthy and, and borderline like abusive, like Really, I mean, maybe it was, but it just felt very, uh, ugh, I didn't like it. Uh, I didn't like the the form of like totalitarian authority that pastors took in those churches. And then the church plant that I was a part of was in the midst of just falling apart. Like when I got there, I went to join them because they were associated with an, uh, a group that my church back in Spokane was involved with. So I was hanging out with them and they were already suffering some serious infighting and just like just falling apart. And I'd never seen that up close. And it was just unhealthy and kind of dark and gross. And they were all nice people. They they weren't bad people, but like the whole thing was falling apart. And for me, like I said in this video I made before, I really did believe that there was something supernatural going on in the church, right? Like I looked at the way that I read um, scripture and the way that I was taught you know, there was, we're all fallen, we're all imperfect, but at the same time, like, there's supposed to be this indwelling of the spirit, there's supposed to be a transformation going on, and, you know, there's supposed to be, God is supposed to be among us, there's supposed to be a power here of some sort, we're supposed to be a light on a hill, like, we're supposed to actually be an example, we're supposed to shine, we're supposed to show something, and the more that I, like, started to see these things happening and the more that I started seeing the incongruencies in behavior and the more that I came to realize that like my own behavior was actually fairly self-righteous and fairly arrogant the more it started to kind of fall apart and so when I went back to the states I ended up back in Spokane for a couple years Um, the recession hit so that was really fun and I got involved with that church again even joined an internship program, which I felt like was a massive step backwards in a way. I was like, here I am doing all this stuff. And like, I don't know. I just felt like I didn't belong. I didn't get plugged in. Nobody really saw what potential I had, which maybe I didn't have any potential within the church. I don't know, but I just felt like I was being underutilized. And I just remember feeling really dissatisfied and like, like, like I didn't know what to do, where I belong. Like I led a small group and I did all these things, but I was just like, yeah, but there has to be more to this. I have to be able to do more. I don't know. I just thought like, shouldn't I be given more responsibility or I don't know. There was some dissatisfaction there, but then I was really struggling with just having lived abroad, having my entire worldview challenged. I met some people that really challenged me like in political thought, in how I saw my place in the world, how I saw America's place in the world, how I saw so many things. I um, started to see how my faith was really tied to my identity as an American, how I had all these cultural lenses that I was seeing through, and I met people that really saw the world differently. Um, and I already mean saw the world differently from people, you know, in Spokane a little bit, but that was a big, there were some big shocks in there. And so I was just really struggling to make it. And then as I was struggling to like find my way to like be a, creative person like whether that was through writing or web design or making videos or whatever for one there just wasn't the support network there just in general because there weren't a lot of creative people around and certainly nobody that had ever really done what I was trying to do as far and like you know it's just not a town that had the people around that could tell me like hey man just just keep at it like it's going to be hard get a get an easy job makes make enough money to get by and then put you know not nobody was there to give me any advice like that 
like to say, hey, you're going to have to work for five to 10 years before you actually, you know, get anywhere unless you go through one of these more traditional paths, blah, blah, blah. There was no mentorship like that for sure. And then as I really was struggling, like emotionally and just even mentally, like just like to handle all this, to deal with the like what I now recognize as an immature understanding of the world and of God, but, you know, really struggling to understand like why, hey, look, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm trying to be a good Christian, a good person. I'm trying to follow all the rules and like life's only getting harder. <laughs> you know, the world seems to be falling apart in the financial crisis. Like my, all the opportunities are drying up. I find myself working really crappy temp jobs just to make ends meet. And I do feel like I didn't realize the entitlement that I had, but I did feel like I was owed something. Um, and there was also no one around that was able to really clearly be like, yeah, Nobody owes you anything in a way that I could hear, at least, you know. There's some people that told me, like, you deserve to go to hell. Like, you should just be happy you're alive. Not a healthy thing either, but all these things kind of came together, and I found there to be no support in this group of people that were supposed to be my number one support. They were supposed to be, like, my community. They were supposed to be my, whether that was my faith community, my friends, whatever. I felt really, really isolated. I found, I found myself really alone, despite being surrounded by people that supposedly cared for me. You go on a Sunday or to a small group or whatever, there'd be a lot of hugs given. There'd be a lot of, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And nothing, nothing followed. No, no matter how honest you were about how tough things were. Oh, okay. There's no follow-up with that, you know? There was just, there was no depth to it. And I know that there, that's not the case for all faith communities or all um, churches or all whatever. There's, there, I'm not saying that that's, that's a blanket statement of all people, but the people that I found myself surrounded with that I had come to, you know, identify with and rely on really, really, fell through for me and in some bigger ways later too. So I, uh, that's when I've like found myself like weeping in the car being like, dad, why don't I don't want to do this? Talking to my dad on the phone, just at a loss under an immense amount of financial strain, no certainty of where to go in the future. No idea what I was even doing with my life. Like having all these desires of wanting to tell stories, to write books, to make movies and no path forward. And, just absolutely crippled by a handful of anxieties and the way in which I was raised and like my poor financial education, everything. Like I just had, I had a lot to work through and I actually feel a lot of empathy, some pity even for like my, my younger self. Cause like it was rough and I didn't, I don't even know if I had a full picture of how rough it really was at that point. I just knew that I was underwater and drowning and it felt like there was no one there to help me. There were a lot of people looking at me that nobody was reaching a hand out to actually help. And I did meet a couple of people later, like especially as I, once I decided to join Mercy Ships, which was honestly as much a bid to escape that situation as anything. Like there was a part of me that felt like God had always called me to go to Africa kind of thing and I didn't want to go. And then I felt like, okay, well I have to go, which we can discuss the weirdness of that. And there's a whole like post-colonial, oh man, oh man, when we get into the post-colonial or neo-colonial uh, elements of NGO work in West Africa, that's a, uh, oh boy, that's, that's heavy. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, for me, like, I really wanted to use my French. I really wanted to travel. I mentioned film school earlier. I quit film school to get a, a French degree instead because uh, it was just easier and I could focus more on ministry. Um you know, here I am just stuck with no real prospects in a town where nobody seems to even like want to, I don't know. I just felt, I felt so dead ended and just like miserable, constantly frustrated, constantly fighting against just everything to try and make sense, even make sense of the world, let alone find a way through it. I just felt incredibly lost and overwhelmed. And my parents, when they decided to sell their house and um, join Mercy Ships, I was like, that sounds really cool. And I just kind of just kind of stumbled into it, jumped onto it. And as soon as I decided that, I found some really nice people that like wanted to be a part of that and wanted to support me in that. And that was really cool. And there's some really, really, really wonderful people that um, that became a part of that team. Honestly, a lot of the people, a lot of the best people, you know, that I knew, I find, you know, you find them right when you're leaving kind of a thing. And that was really nice. Um, and Mercy Ships was quite the adventure and a really good a really good chapter of my life in a lot of ways. One of the hardest chapters of my life. 
first time I saw people die the first time. I mean, I, 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 I could have almost died a couple times myself, I guess, but I mean, just a lot of dramatic stuff and a totally foreign experience in so many ways to the point that like, I feel like I empathize with toddlers now where I'm like the, the, the stimuli that is coming at your brain as it tries to rewire itself in this new world uh, causes just the heaviest brain fog, tunnel vision, and like the deepest sleep at night. And that was my experience when, especially when I got to Sierra Leone, which is my first West African country. And as we're going through like that chapter of my life, like volunteering on a ship, raised support, put myself in pretty, in a not a great financial spot there as well. Great pattern to live through for a long time in my life. Um, Working with people from all over the world, uh, you know, trying to give medical assistance to people that really needed it, trying to fit in to a a medical community. I have no medical background, no medical training beyond like first aid and whatever else. So like I'm I'm an auxiliary support. So I'm not even part of the core mission, you know, and I really felt that for the first few years, especially. I was in and out of my own, I was way out of my comfort zone, but also kind of right in the middle of where I needed to be. And what I started to see was, again, the weird cultural lenses that everybody like saw their, saw their faith through. Like they, we, we mislabeled it as like, well, this is what's true. This is what the Bible says. But in reality, we were just kind of justifying our own personal or cultural beliefs with religious terms and trying to appeal to a higher authority to, you know, shore up our arguments. And the more that I saw that happening, the more that I did it, and then started to recognize that I was doing it too, and then seeing everyone else doing it, and then looking back at, like, what I thought, you know, the whole, the faith thing was supposed to be, um, I just became really disenchanted with it, with it all, with the organization itself. I, got, I suffered some pretty heavy abuse early on, within the organization, just like from some of my higher ups, as far as like my working relationships went, there was one, the managing director of the ship. I was, so my first job was as the audiovisual director. This is just an example. I was an audiovisual, the audiovisual technician, which is a weird job and I should never have taken it to be honest, but I ended up running the soundboards and TVs and like I had to do the, you know, organize the team and do the sound stuff for like music and speaking and all this stuff. So I ran all of the, microphones and things like that something i could technically do something i had done before but definitely not where i i shine i'm not not gifted for it they gave me a frankenstein of a system the system was just patched together by dozens of different people who'd passed through over the years and it was just it was janky and didn't really work and there was interference from everything you're on a like a medical ship that's formerly a ferry that has you know it was just it was a nightmare and I just remember that there was there were some issues and, and I was the dog that got kicked if there were ever any problems, even if it wasn't my fault. And I just remember there was always this tension between myself and basically the leadership of the ship because they all had to speak at different points. The system was always falling apart. And anytime it did or they, you know, they had any struggles, like I was the one that they took it out on, despite the fact that I just showed up. I don't know what's going on. And um, the I just remember getting blasted by the managing director who I'd become friends with later. but. Um, I wasn't friends with any of these people to start. Like we all, we all patched it over, over time. But at the beginning, they were all pretty brutal to me. And the managing director also, yeah, he basically just sent this email out where it should have just been a direct email to me and maybe my boss where it was like just saying scathing things about like the state of the system and how like everything's unacceptable and I'm unacceptable and blah, blah, blah. It was really, really harsh. But he, he sent that to the entire like leadership structure. Like I, there were, I think like a dozen or more people that got this just like put me on blast in front of literally everybody that I was going to have to work with. It was, it was brutal enough of an email that my boss actually came straight over as soon as he got it and was like, are you okay? Like this, I would not be okay if this happened to me. Like, are you okay? And I just like, I just took it. I just took it. So there are a lot of, th- there are a lot of things like that going on. Like just not a great situation. Like I saw that the, the culture of the ship was like very organized around like just working volunteers to death and like being like, we'll get another volunteer later. There wasn't a lot of concern for the people. Like you were cogs in a machine. And I was just like this, we, we don't care for ourselves. We are, actively caring for the people on the ship or on the on shore that we're here to help but like all this talk about faith in jesus and loving each other and blah 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 like we we 
we can't, we're not living this out. We're not actually loving each other. This isn't a loving or safe environment. There are people on, on board that are clearly gay, but won't come out because it's not a safe place just to be yourself. Um, that happened all the time. Like there was just, whether like your the faith disagreements, the, the asinine discussions about like the length of women's skirts and drinking alcohol and stuff like where there was a lot of really dark stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, that just got overlooked depending on how high up the food chain you were, you know, there's just a lot of hypocrisy going on. And while the organization itself as like an NGO does a lot of active good, like the, they, they had to do demonstrative good because the surgeries they carry out are definitely having an impact. And the, you know, the education that they do is also having an impact. Like, and they're, they're making, they're making a difference. But as far as like doing it in the name of God and the way that they treated each other, the way that I was treated, the way that I saw a lot of people treated over the time, I just like, I don't want anything to do with this. This is not how we should, if we love each other, this is not love. Like this is abuse. And I, I mean, like I just kind of came to see it as endemic where anywhere I went, I felt like quote unquote, the church was like this. I'd been a part of like some fun parachurch organizations like organizations that are like just outside the church a parachurch organization is one that's not in the church but is filled with churchy people who are doing work to support the church and you know i'd had good experiences here and there but like there just was nothing different or special about this group of people that made them noteworthy in like a way of like oh yeah we're being transformed we're being changed like we're we're good or better or people are <laughs> i don't know i just i the all the ideals that i'd held and i was a very idealistic young man so this makes it really rough too they just they all came you know came apart at the seams and as they came apart at the seams i was like i don't know what i believe here anymore like i i feel just incredibly disappointed and hurt and not only by others, but really by myself, because then I started to really look at myself and I've shared this somewhere, but the story of the prodigal son is, I feel like I've talked about this already on my podcast. I don't know for sure, but the, I'm just briefly the, uh, the story of a young man that Jesus tells, this is a story that Jesus tells and he's telling it to some religious elites. And it's a story about a family father and two sons and the younger son goes to the father and says, basically, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I'm going into town. Like, I'm going to live my life. And so he takes his third of the estate and leaves. And the older brother, meanwhile, is like, well, that's messed up. And he stays. He's a loyal son. He works hard, hard working. Like, he's there for his dad. He's doing all the right things. And a year later, when the younger son has blown through all of his money and finds himself just living in the gutter, he's like, well, maybe my dad will take pity on me. I'm going to go home. Maybe he'll give me a job at, at, at least like, cause at least my father's servants don't have to eat like pig slop. And so he goes back in all humility, just hoping to be taken back. And his father sees him from afar, runs to him, puts his cloak around him, puts his ring on his finger and throws a huge party saying, my son was dead, but now he's alive. He's come back to us and just takes him in without question, which is a beautiful, beautiful story. But the older brother standing outside is like, this is just the, what, like I've stayed here. I have been a good and loyal son. I have done everything right. And I, uh, I, I'm not getting a party. Like what the heck is this? And so the father sends out multiple envoys to say, Hey, come in and join, join us for this party. Like you, it's a celebration and he refuses. And ever since I was a kid, I always agreed with the older brother. I was like, yeah, that's bullshit. Like what the heck? Why, why are they throwing this party for this like brigand should go to the good son. The good son should be rewarded. Right. But I always, there was something always unsettling for me within that and my own reaction. And when I got older, I finally realized that I was an older brother, which was obvious. Like I'm identifying with him, but I also never realized that that, that, that meant that I'd missed the whole point. Just like that older brother just like the religious elite that Jesus was pointing to and saying, you guys are choosing basically to stay in hell. This group of people that like, I tend to say Jesus hated because I feel like there's only, there's very few people that Jesus hated, but the religious elite were among them. I don't know if that's true. That might be too harsh. So people take 
absolute umbrage with the idea that Jesus hated anybody. But either way, I found myself as like the one within this one group of people that Jesus wasn't cool with. And that was supposedly my whole thing was being cool with Jesus. And I was shaken to the core. I was absolutely terrified by this. And I came to realize that like everything that I had built up, everything I thought I believed, all of it was, I mean, there hopefully was some truth in it, but I had corrupted that entirely with how I had gone about acting on it and actively believing it and engaging with it and sharing it, spreading it, internalizing it, everything. I just, I was deeply corrupt. And I was a massive hypocrite. I was, yeah, really just self-righteous and, and walking around like I, uh, like my shit didn't stink, but uh, I couldn't smell it because I was covered in it. Hey, and so I, uh, I, I dropped everything. I was like, I can't, I can't be a part of this anymore. Like, I'm so angry. Um, on the one hand, at how the manifestation of this faith in the church and in reality, like this God that is supposedly loving and just, is allowing all the suffering and so forth. Like I couldn't accept suffering. I couldn't deal with all of that. I couldn't, I had a very immature view of the world and I was really struggling with that. And on the other hand, I, um, I gained insight into myself that made me so deeply disappointed with myself, but also left me feeling completely lost because I had put my entire identity and I'd poured everything I had into this faith structure and into like, thinking that I knew something, anything, everything that I knew enough, you know, that I knew what I needed to know and I was doing the right things and I was a part of the in club and like, it was all going to be all right. You know, I'd invested so much in that identity and it just completely crumbled underneath me. And it was the beginning of a lot of identities crumbling. I've been going through that for the last decade at this point, really like just seeing all these different ways in which I identified myself as a, as an, an American, what that used to mean what, uh, to me, like Christian, good son, good brother, community member, on and on and on. Like all these things that I used to think were really, really important that are important in their own ways, but like I put a really unhealthy level of importance on them, in particular through how I was doing it. As that all started just tumbling apart, like, I didn't know what to replace it with. I didn't know where to go. I came back to the States after my time in West Central Africa and a little bit in France, bouncing around completely alone. Like I was on the road traveling, doing this job. When I would go to church with friends on the weekends, whenever I was visiting, I would just be angry the whole time, furious, just running through everything in my head, how hypocritical everything was. And then I just couldn't handle it. I... I had really shaken myself to the core. I had seen parts of the world I'd never knew existed. I'd engaged with suffering and death in ways that I never had before and uh, had my very, like, all my base assertions and uh, assumptions, but also, like, reasoned ideas of the world completely challenged and thrown into question. And I came back to the States to find no satisfactory answers. And again, no one willing to engage with me in a way that was going to help me. Like you talk about this stuff with anyone in the church and they get uncomfortable and they'd rather just f ignore you and cut you out because either they don't, I don't know, I don't know why, at least in my experience, there are people that I've met that definitely have engaged with this and this has changed over time. But when I came back, I really just struggled to find anybody that would honestly be able to engage with me. And to be fair to them, there probably were people that really did want to engage or tried to. And I was just too angry with myself and the world around me to really have a positive engagement. So there's a good chance that I just sabotaged that along the way anyways. But I was really shedding my, the skin of my youth and I didn't know it. And I was letting go of a lot of things that had helped me in certain ways. They helped me navigate a difficult upbringing and a difficult like launch into adulthood. Um, they'd helped me navigate a lot of things, but they weren't helping me anymore. And I didn't know that yet. And I've only really come to realize that in the last few years, like cognitively or cognizantly or uh, up here in the brain space. But I had to walk away from everything because I didn't know what to trust or what to believe. I didn't, and I didn't, I didn't know 
if, if everything that I was raised with and the ways that I was taught and the worldview that I was given, if everything I, I had, had uh, proven to have like lots of holes punched in it, if not be totally wrong, you know, then where do you go? What is a trusted body of information? What is the trusted authority in your life at that point? Who do you go to? And how do you trust your own decisions when you've made a lot of choices and chosen to believe in or follow or do and then discovered how far off you were with that? You know, where, where, how, do you, uh, how do you start rebuilding? And I didn't know. So I just left everything broken and on the ground and just let it, let it be. And honestly, I think that was a pretty good choice because in giving it time and space, I had a lot to process and it was really a struggle. It was not easy. Cooper's starting to snore, so f- sorry if you hear that. But, um, you know, life finds a way, to quote Malcolm. Like, there's this, there, there's a nature and a wildness and the mystery of the universe. Like, there is a regenerative, a regenerative nature within us. And things really did start to come back together for me. But not in a way that I feel like I have any answers or know anything. I think that I've come to accept I can't have the answers to so many of these questions. I can't know so many things. And that's fine. There's actually, there is a beauty in that. And there's something just real about that. There's something just true. I don't have a choice in the matter. It's just the way it is. And I went from being in this, I went from this place where I needed to have the answers and I needed to be able to to deliver them because part of my entire faith structure was being able to basically convince other people that I was right. I grew up around a bunch of people that were right and that had to be right and you had to be right too. You know, I grew up, I had to basically completely leave my social structure, my, my, my in-group. I had to leave my family, my culture, my friends, my community. I had to leave everything in order to be made whole. I didn't know that. I didn't know that I was being set out to see, to be set free. Like when I left everything behind, I did it because like I had to and I knew it. I was so dissatisfied. I was so unhappy. I knew I had to do it. But I didn't, I didn't realize that's just, that's just a part of life. Like I think I I railed against that and I struggled because I thought that I was like, why me? Why is this horrible thing happening to me? Why do all these people seem to fit in here? And I don't, why can they all just accept these things and then live in this space between where I'm going for a full extreme or another? Like, why don't I, why can't I figure this out? Why does everyone else seem to have, which obviously now I know nobody has anything really figured. Like we're all, we're all winging it, but I, it just, I felt very, very alone and isolated. And the reality was that I, everybody has to go through something similar one way or another. We don't, you don't have to. I think a lot of people choose to, to just stay at home to stay on the shore. But so many of us have that journey in front of us. I think we were all offered that journey one way or another. And the only way to truly find home is to leave it. The only, that's, I mean, that's the story structure, uh, right. Of, of all the myths and, all the heroes, not to say I'm a hero, but this is just, this is just in, in, in like an archetype, an archetypical level of human nature, right? Where in our journey, in our spiritual journey, in our growth, we have to leave home. We have to forget home. We have to hate home. We have to reject who we were so that we can come back to it and reclaim it for what it really is. Like you leave your home, you leave your family not to never come back to them, but to to properly come back to them. Because you need to be able to reject all of the things you think you are, the person that you think you are, to find who you always were all along. And I can't I can't go so far as to say that I know who I am in that way, like that depth. Um, but I'm getting a lot closer to it. Like I'm learning I definitely learned to love myself and accept myself for who I am in ways that I never did before. Um, and that's the journey that I'm on. But the cool thing is that I feel like in very recent history, like even in the last few weeks, I'm in a place now where I can talk about this and not get overwhelmed by like shame or anger or all the negative emotions that used to come up with this. 
are really finally starting to fade. And I want that to be the case. I would like to, I'd like to move on. I'd like to um, forgive everything that needs forgiving and forget what needs forgetting and embrace the whole package as a part of who I am and was and let that inform me as I move forward into the journey of who I have always been and who I need to become again. So yeah, that's where I'm at with all of this. I mean, there's an endless amount of stuff you can talk about within this, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know how much is necessary. I don't know how many details are really necessary. I don't need to go into all the ways that people really, really um, disappointed me or hurt me or anything like that because I don't want to live like a victim. Um, I think that like being the victim of certain things, you do have to find a way of like, of leaning into it, I guess. Like you have to, like you do have to own it. You have to embrace it. You have to, whatever it takes to get through it is necessary. But like for me, I'm, I've been the victim for a long time, very privately. I've never talked about this stuff publicly. There are things that happen that genuinely are horrible, but like at the same time, I don't need to carry those forward and I don't need to propagate them. I think I just, I would like to, learn from them, forgive and move on, I guess. I don't know. I feel like I've, I feel like I've done the heavy lifting that I need to do, but we'll find out, won't we? So anyway, I think that's, um, that's, I, that, I think that's about it. Like for me right now where it's at is I'm, I'm engaging with spirituality again. I'm just wanting to learn about myself and my own journey. And I think that there is so much to find within ourselves anyways. That uh, in this in this journey of trying to, to to know and love myself, I think it's re it's what's returning me to the spiritual side of things. Um, but at the end of the day, like I would like to be kind and loving to those around me, and I would love to be kind and loving to myself. I'd love to not be totally assailed by dog farts. Excuse me while I try to wave that away. Um, the dangers of having a Cooper around while recording. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's it. I think that's just enough for now. Like, I don't, I don't know where I go from here and I don't know, I don't have any answers, but that's fine. I will continue on this journey. I'll see where it takes me. I'm excited to find out not only where it takes me, but like who I am in a very real sense. Like I'm really looking forward to getting to know myself that much better in the next year, 10 years, the rest of my life. It's pretty cool. It's really cool. I, it's really cool to get to this place and feel like, you know what, I have, my life's just starting in a way. I, 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 they used to make me really sad and angry to think of all the time that was stolen from me um, by fear and anxiety, by um, being hobbled by misguided beliefs and raised in a community that held me back, instilled fear in me and didn't believe in me. But now... I just see that as the past and I really do see right now as the platform for the future and all that stuff that came before informs who I am. And as much as that could be just kind of like a, a brushing off, I think that that's really true. Like, no, nope, I'm going to, I want to embrace it. I want to know myself. I want to know where I came from and, uh, and I want to, I want to see where I go from here. I just want to keep growing. So that'll be it for season two of garage monologues. I might do a little bonus episode because I wanted to talk about 2023 and uh, the year of becoming French. I think that 2023 is going to be just a different a different year. I, if you're listening to these garage monologues, these will continue. And the cool thing about them is that like the whole point of this is to maintain this connection, like this personal connection with me as far as my life and, and who I am and my friends and what's going on. And I think YouTube, I would like to take, I'm going to, there are a few videos that I want to make um, that are very personal, but I think I'd like to stop ultimately like the way that Nate put it. Uh, I want to stop strip mining, uh, my life for content and give that a break. Like maybe come back to it in a year or two, but like just try something a little bit different, which I think a lot of everybody's been telling me, like, let's focus on some France content. You can still get piece snippets of me as I talk about becoming French, but yeah, I think it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll talk about that maybe in a little more length here in a video or a podcast to come. But for now, that's the end of season 
two of Garage Monologues. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season if you're listening to this when it initially came out. I hope that spring is treating you well if you're listening to this on the public feed. And I will uh, see you again bright and early one of these mornings sometime soon for the beginnings of season three of Garage Monologues, which I think will probably kick off, I'm hoping, with my dad. But I'm going to do some interviews with like my dad and Ashley and some others while uh, I'm in the States. So that should be fun. Looking forward to it. See you for that. And oh, here's a little goodbye from sleep. He's kind of waking up. Oh, look how sleepy he is. Oh, <laughs> the light is so bright. It's so bright out there. Oh, why did you pick me up? It was so nice and warm and dark on your lap. Oh, <laughs> adios. Oh.